Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, it may take some time for people to recover from the difficult decisions they had to make during the pandemic, an even greater challenge for women who are often handicapped by stereotypes in the financial planning industry. Also this morning, even after 40 years, HIV infection rates in the Bible Belt South are as high as they were at the height of the AIDS epidemic. Could, of all things, a faith-based awareness campaign help get this crisis under control once and for all? And the application deadline for Finley Kiwanis scholarships is rapidly approaching. It is one program supported by the annual Pancake Day fundraiser, which will look a little different this year. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Tuesday, March 16th, 2021. I'm Dave James on the Ohio News Network. After 18 days of searching, the body of a Mansfield woman has been found in the trunk of her car in Galloway. That's a suburb on the southwest side of Columbus. Yolanda Harris with ONN affiliate WBNS-TV in Columbus has more. Richland County Sheriff Steve Sheldon says 33-year-old Melinda Davis went missing last month when she went to her ex-boyfriend's home and was never seen again. The information that we have today is very limited, but it was important for us to get it out. Her ex-boyfriend, John John Mack Jr. is charged with kidnapping in the case, but more charges could be pending. For the second time in less than two weeks, Polaris Fashion Place, just north of Columbus, was the site of a shooting incident that left shoppers running for cover. ONN's Angela Rygard says it happened in the middle of the afternoon yesterday. What happened was nothing short of scary. We heard three to four gunshots. It happened right next to us, for sure. You could feel, like, just feel the echoes. They were just coming at us, it felt like. Fortunately, police say no one was hurt. Columbus police say two groups of young people were fighting, and then at least one person fired a gun on the main floor of the mall. It comes nearly two weeks after another shooting at Polaris. Police haven't said if they are connected. Reporting in Columbus, Angela Rygard. Saturday is the first day of spring, and forecasters say most days over the next couple of weeks are likely to be above average in temperature. I'm Dave James on the Ohio News Network. Just four days until spring now. We're counting it down. Today is everything you do is right day. Now, you remember yesterday, it was everything you think is wrong day. So this is the opposite of that. Uh, no matter what happened yesterday, no matter what happened in the past, today, it says, can be its own bright day. In fact, it's going to be a perfect day, and everything you do is going to turn out right. Well, isn't that an optimistic attitude to start your day? Everything you do is right day today. It is also Freedom of Information Day, Lips Appreciation Day. I know I always appreciate a good set of lips. <laughs> National Panda Day and is uh, World Social Work Day today. So a big shout out to all the social workers out there doing great work. So here's the story. They say that money can't buy happiness. Uh, this is the Beatles song, Can't Buy Me Love. Uh, what is it? The old, uh, was it a Henny Youngman joke or something that said uh, money can't buy or Bob Hope? I think Bob Hope maybe once uh, said, money can't buy happiness, it can't rent it for a few hours. <laughs> well, it turns out that money can, in fact, buy you happiness, but you just might not be able to afford it. Purdue University researchers found that you would need to make $105,000 
which is about 36 grand over the country's median household income in order to be happy. One hundred five thousand dollars. Scientists say this is the amount of money that it takes to reach the state where increases in income no longer produce meaningful benefits to happiness. So 105,000 and exactly 105,000, 106,000 will not make you any happier, but 105 will make you happier than making 104,000 scientists say, um, the good news is that happiness does not require obscene wealth, but the bad news is that in a lot of, quote-unquote, happy countries, you need to be doing better than average when it comes to your income. So that was the United States threshold, $105,000 for the country as a whole. Happiness costs the most, they say, in New York, New York City, $139,183 is what it costs to be happy. Also, uh, Honolulu is right up there. The least expensive places to find happiness are all outside of the U.S. Panama, Antigua, Costa Rica, and Mexico. Each of those locations have a happiness index between roughly $16,000 and $38,000. In Europe, Portugal has the lowest happiness index at right around $70,000. So... That's how the United States uh, compares the most expensive place other than the United States. Bern, Switzerland uh, is the uh, place where it costs the most to be happy. So there you go. The happiness threshold. Money can buy happiness after all. It's just we we can't afford it. (laughs) Well, that'll cheer you up here to uh, start your Tuesday morning. Fewer people have been seeking information about quitting smoking since the pandemic began a year ago. This is really kind of interesting. And and here over the past couple of weeks, we've had all of these analyses one year into the pandemic on how it has impacted our lives. A report released Friday by the North American Quitline Consortium. Uh, they're the ones that operate that uh, that line 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They say just over 525,000 calls were made to smoking quit lines in 2020. That is a 27% decrease from the numbers in 2019 and the lowest level that they have seen since 2007. And they say call volumes dropped in parallel to the timeline of the pandemic with a 6% decrease in the first quarter of 2020 followed by declines of 39%, 30%, and 21% in the second, third, and fourth quarters of last year, respectively. Uh, Linda Bailey, president and CEO of the Quitline Consortium, says stress and anxiety may be factors in the increase in tobacco use and, as a result, the decrease in interest in quitting. So, kind of interesting there. Other ways that uh, the pandemic has impacted us, Restaurants, obviously, are now struggling. This is kind of interesting. Now, as businesses are reopening, many restaurants are making some changes. In England, this is a trend, and I can imagine this catching on in this country as well. Some restaurants are now telling customers they must pay before they eat. 
It's kind of like having to pay before you gas up your car. Didn't used to be. I mean, if you're uh, old enough to remember the days where you filled up your tank and then you went in to pay, uh, you can't do that anymore. Now the same thing is happening at restaurants. New policy is apparently a result uh, response from owners worrying about people making reservations and not showing up. So not only uh, do you have to pay before you eat, you have to even pay before you show up. You make a reservation because a lot of restaurants, particularly in England, are only, I mean, they're uh, open for dine in now, but only by reservation so they can control the number of people uh, in the restaurant at any one time. So they're making people pay when they make their reservations, uh, restaurant owner Cray Treadwell uh, tells the Sun newspaper that his venue will be serving a 10-course tasting menu and is taking payments up front. He said it's really not unlike buying a ticket to the theater. If you can't go that night, you can give it to your friend, but you have to pay when you buy your tickets, not when you show up, and certainly not after the show is over. So same kind of thing with restaurants. I can see that catching on in in this country to be sure and uh, even though we have spent more time at home over the course of the past year that doesn't necessarily mean we are any more enthusiastic about the household chores a new survey by yelp 80 percent of chore doing respondents said that they have disagreements between themselves and their spouse about the housework One-fifth say the disagreements happen frequently. More specifically, couples seem to be most at odds with each other over details like when to actually do the housework, how to do it, who should do it, whether or not to hire a professional, and how good of a job their cleaning person is doing if they have indeed hired a cleaning person. And it is no wonder couples keep bickering over domestic tasks, 61% say they often have to clean again after their partner did. (laughs) Uh, So which chores do people hate the most? The worst offenders, washing the dishes and cleaning the kitchen. Number two, doing laundry. Number three, cleaning the bathroom, which I would have guessed would have been number one, but that's only number three. Sweeping and vacuuming was number four, and cooking meals and grocery shopping the fifth least favorite household chore kind of. So even though we're spending more time at home, it appears that our houses are not any tidier. Twitter had a a funny glitch over the weekend. I don't know if you heard about this. This is definitely one of those uh, most buzzworthy, most interesting stories of the day. Twitter had a glitch on Sunday. You know how they've been very carefully monitoring things that have been posted on their platform for any hate speech or inappropriate behavior, uh, that kind of thing. Well, apparently on Sunday, anyone who tweeted the word Memphis got put in Twitter jail. (laughs) Uh, People uh, tweeting the word Memphis got a message telling them that they had violated Twitter's rules against posting private information. Uh, Twitter released a statement saying there was a system-wide issue impacting accounts that tweeted the word Memphis. The issue mistakenly uh, said that account owners had to delete those tweets and temporarily limited 
their access to the platform. The affected accounts are now reinstated and the issue has been resolved. I don't know what it was about the word Memphis, but for some reason that, that triggered Twitter to go all a tweet uh, on Sunday. That's too bad. I, I wish I'd have known about that. I would have tweeted it just to see what would happen. I would imagine that people, when they found that out, uh, probably were tweeting it just to mess with the system and see what would happen. But uh, in any event, and lastly, among the uh, first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. Speaking of technology, Tinder, the dating app now says that they will soon offer background checks on potential dates. Now, you would think that maybe this was something that they've been doing all along, but apparently not. Uh, Match Group owns the app, and they have partnered with the nonprofit background check platform Garbo to bring the service to Tinder and its other dating apps like OkCupid and Match.com. Here's the thing. They're not going to background check everyone. You will have to pay a fee to have your potential date background checked. The cost has not been disclosed yet, but the average fee for a national criminal background check is usually somewhere between $7 and $15. There is a catch. In order for someone using a dating app to take advantage of the background check feature, they would first need a person's first name and phone number or the person's full name. So those who don't want to be background checked could potentially get around it. Uh, they say Twitter users or Tinder users rather will be able to access a range of reports on their potential dates, but the service would not include, you know, common things like traffic tickets and things like that. Um, the group also says it will not publicize drug charges as such offenses do not typically coincide with gender based violence. That's what they're trying to really curb. Uh, it'll be rolled out on Tinder in the coming months and then later this year, on other brands, uh, OKCupid and Match.com will gain access as well. But again, this is something I would have thought was being done already, but apparently not. And I wonder how it will go over that they're going to charge a fee to do a simple background check on the people on their platform. I can imagine that... Uh, there might be some pushback because of the fee. Anyway, kind of interesting there. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Tuesday morning started. Well, we were talking uh, just yesterday about the need that many people will have moving forward for good financial planning after enduring the hardships of the past year in order to get their long-term goals back on track. This is especially true for women who, although they control increasing amounts of wealth, still are kind of handcuffed by the gender investing gap. Uh, a gap that could be costing women more than a million dollars over the course of their careers. And joining us now is uh, the Director of Investments at Stash, Mindy Yu. Mindy, why does this still exist in the year 2021, this gender investing gap? Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me. And definitely the gender investing gap is something that's very important to discuss. And actually not many people know that exists, right? What it means is women aren't investing as much as men. That's what it boils down to. And then as a result, they are earning less compared to what men earn on their investments. And what's been widening the gap too is that women tend to live longer, so they have to stretch their earnings out further. 
And then secondly, women are earning less, so they have less to contribute to their investing. So, so we at Dash are trying to encourage women to invest so, as they can. So it's kind of a, a, a triple whammy. You've got uh, women who aren't investing. They're living longer, so they're going to mm-hmm. need uh, more money and, of course, uh, not making as much to invest. So uh, it's a big exactly. one, two, three punch. Uh, so how do we start to change this and close the investing gap? Yeah, and it's just really having those conversations. Um, we know historically women have not been involved in discussions about finance or investing. Um, in our recent survey that we conducted at SASH, 70% of men were exposed to personal finance at a young age compared to 54% of men, uh, <clears throat> 54% of women. Right. And twice the amount of men have invested or been learning about investing at a young age compared to women. So having conversations and, and knowing that it's okay that we discuss this and have an opinion, and I think that's important to open the doors of um, speaking about investing and starting to invest. So uh, aside from getting the information uh, out there and, and closing the knowledge gap, are there other barriers when it comes to investing for women? Yeah, in the same survey, we found that the top three barriers women face were, number one, women felt like they needed a lot of money to start investing. And then secondly, uh, investing is risky and they're afraid to lose money. And then third, they didn't know where to start. And I think over time, a lot of these barriers have been reduced because platforms like Stash have uh, allowed for investing to be easy and affordable. Uh, Investing at Stash, you can start with as little as $5. So it's really thinking about it's a cup of coffee, um, per day that you can actually redirect to investing. And then over time, you have educational resources and personalized guidance that helps you along the way. So if you feel it's too risky, we help navigate some of that volatility with you. And then we instill personalized guidance. So if you don't know where to start, we're able to partner with you to do that. How, how soon... Can especially for women who tend to be, as the uh, study that you referenced uh, tends to back this up, women do tend to be a little bit more conservative and cautious uh, with their uh, with their money. They uh, are a bit more risk averse than maybe men are in general. So, given that, and we certainly know uh, how. Uh, individual investors who are kind of going it on their own can get into trouble. Stories like that have been in the news uh, over the the past several weeks. Where would you suggest starting? I mean, uh, you know, at what point are uh, are you ready to actually jump in? Because you you have to have some of that basic in, uh, information and education first, right? Yeah, for uh, for investing to begin, you have to find that support. You have to have those conversations. But secondly, have those educational resources that can help you learn about investing a little bit at a time at your comfort level. Um, Stash is a big uh, advocate for long-term diversified investing. And we want to empower you with uh, educational resources that way you can make informed long-term decisions. And on our our webpage, uh, we have a learn page that teaches you everything from the foundations of investing, personal finance, to um, more recent market commentary. So educating yourself a little bit along the way at whatever comfort level you, you have mm-hmm. um, is, is certainly important. And But to note that 
you don't have to be an expert in order to get started. I think the misconception also is that you need to be financially savvy, you need to be an expert in order to start, but that's where SASH can help you along the way, provide that educational resource for you and guide you to make sure that you're on track to hit your investment goals. It is certainly a point well taken that uh, the the most important thing is just to start, and then uh, you can become mm-hmm. more sophisticated. Uh, the uh, deeper you go into this, the more you know, the more comfortable you will be uh, with uh, you know the more sophisticated side of this. But just starting is the important. So hopefully, we have driven the point home for women, especially uh, that it is time to sort of take the bull by the the horns as it were and and get started you mention mm-hmm. uh the uh, website where uh women particularly can get uh, the information they need to get started and then actually get started let's mention that again sure it's stash.com slash owning it all right we will link up uh that website on our webpage as well uh so folks can check that out again uh, director of investments at stash mindy you with us this morning talking about closing the gender investment gap mindy thanks very much for taking the time we appreciate it Thank you so much for having me. Well, it has been roughly 40 years since it first grabbed the headlines, but the HIV epidemic still has a hold on this country. In southern states particularly, according to the CDC, the South is still experiencing infection rates comparable to some of the earliest days of the pandemic. Why is this still happening in 2021? And can faith-based institutions play a role in mitigating the HIV epidemic in the Bible Belt South? Joining us this morning are Dr. Chanel McGoy, Director of Public Affairs Gilead Sciences, and Dr. Allison Matthews, Executive Director of the Gilead Compass Faith Coordinating Center at Wake Forest University. Uh, Dr. McGoy, I'll start with you. Let's begin with the numbers. Kind of lay this out for us statistically here. Yes, thank you for having us uh, today to share more information about HIV. So according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention data, there are specific communities who continue to experience the greatest burden of HIV in the U.S. And you mentioned it, the geographic region is something that's important. So when we look at new HIV diagnosis in this country, the southern U.S. represents more than half or 52% of new HIV diagnosis in the U.S. And then there are particular demographics who experience the greatest burden of HIV. Those are black communities and other communities of color like the Latinx communities. So for example, despite being only 13% of the U.S. population, black Americans account for 43% of the new HIV diagnosis in our country. And also women of color are experiencing and are vulnerable um, to the burden of HIV as well. So those are the cold hard facts now the big question why why in the south why specifically communities of color and why is this how is this how can it be that this still uh, is an issue in 2021 well there's there are a lot of serious and systemic challenges that contribute to the hiv epidemic especially in the south uh, and you know if we're familiar with uh, the south there are a lot of rural areas there's a lot of limited access to health care uh, services, and high rates of discrimination and stigma. And so in order to address this epidemic and really shift this, um, you know, shift the paradigm, we want to shift this narrative and to reduce stigma and educate people about 
the, uh, you know, the risk of, of HIV as well as people's experiences living with HIV. So we talk about the numbers, we talk about the why. Let me ask this. Let's talk about the trajectory. Uh, what is at stake here if you don't address this issue, if something doesn't change moving forward? Yes, that's an excellent question. Uh, we can continue to see the numbers of HIV rise among particular demographics uh, in the southern U.S., um, among black and Latinx communities, among women of color, if we don't address this issue. And then there also uh, could be pervasive stigma and discrimination that exists. And then uh, the burden to our health care system is another, um, as, as we've seen with COVID-19, yeah. um, the inability to... Um, to navigate and contain uh, an epidemic. And so, you know, these consequences, if we don't contain HIV, um, could exacerbate. And so what we're doing through the Gilead Compass Initiative, it is a 10-year, $100 million commitment to address HIV in the southern U.S. And we're doing that by changing public perception, increasing local leadership and advocacy, and increasing access to and quality of health care services for people living uh, with HIV in the South. Yeah, Dr. Matthews, I want to ask you, as uh, you were mentioning, you you have teamed, uh, or the uh, uh, Gilead Sciences teamed with Wake Forest University School of Divinity uh, in this 10-year, $100 million initiative to address uh, the issue. What will you be doing as part of this initiative? Wake Forest University is committed to uh, addressing stigma around HIV and, and pulling... Um, the experts in the field around, you know, uh, faith and health to help train um, community-based organizations, faith-based organizations across the South on how to, you know, establish and build capacity for this work and establish programs that help educate people about HIV. We're also providing opportunities for grant funding to support that work in those um, organizations and hosting a series of trainings to um, to help build out that capacity and coordinate efforts across the South. Yeah, that's what I, I wanted to kind of uh, expand on a bit. Talk about uh, the ways in which uh, the Wake Forest University School of Divinity plans to engage uh, with the community on a on a personal level, on a one to one basis, and get that message out, uh, especially to those underserved and harder to reach communities that need it the most. So we will be hosting a podcast where we'll be um, interviewing uh, experts in the field and talking about, you know, uh, topics around the Bible and healing and 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 how we can integrate uh, messages about love and faith and hope uh, and addressing stigma to address stigma around HIV and faith communities. And we'll, you know, that having those training opportunities and the funding will also help support faith-based organizations to establish their own programs and ministries to to um, minister to people living with HIV. Now, I, I'm going to be very blunt here. Those who remember back in the early days of the AIDS crisis will no doubt find it rather ironic that we're discussing a faith-based initiative to remove the stigma of HIV because a significant segment of the faith community for a long time uh, viewed AIDS as a result of living one's life contrary uh, to God's directive. Is this a way to perhaps make amends in some way for helping to create some of that stigma in the first place? 
Uh, yeah, I think you're you're definitely right that we have had um, kind of a, uh, some harmful cultural narratives in the in faith based sport uh, communities. And so, however, there have there have been um, uh, a shift in that narrative. And it, there's also we want to part of the reason why we're working with faith based organizations is because there also is a legacy of social justice, particularly in Black um, churches. And addressing, uh, you know, access to uh, civil rights, and the, and and so we want to mm. leverage that um, that history and and the current kind of role in in our mm-hmm. in our communities to push that narrative forward. It is interesting that you also uh, additionally frame this as uh, something of a civil rights issue uh, as well. And I know that this was uh, just recently rolled out, but uh, in the uh, initial, uh, you know, kind of first impressions, what has been uh, the reaction of the uh, faith-based community or the faith community uh, to this initiative? Are are churches, particularly black churches, are are they getting on board? You know, it's interesting because there there are quite a few faith-based organizations and churches who are affirming, who are LGBT affirming, who mm-hmm. are open to and have HIV ministries. And so we are, you know, and there are many who are excited about, you know, thinking about how they can get involved and shift that narrative. So I, I think overall we've had very positive response to it. Again, Dr. Chanel McGoy, uh, Director of Public Affairs for Gilead Sciences, and Dr. Allison Matthews, Executive Director of the Gilead Compass Faith Coordinating Center, Wake Forest, uh, Wake Forest University, with us this morning. Where do folks learn more about uh, the, the resources? Again, this is primarily uh, aimed at uh, the uh, southern states, but I, I'm sure there are resources that anyone can avail of themselves and information that uh, folks can learn, uh, I, I'm guessing you have online, correct? You're exactly right. Um, this 10-year, $100 million commitment um, is to address HIV in the South. But we know that it's going to take the entire country um, and, and the globe to really end HIV uh, on our planet. And so um, people can find out more information about the Gilead Compass Initiative. They may also know people who are living in the South or partnering with people who have expertise around uh, the country to address HIV in the South. And you can find more information at our website. It's simple. It's GileadCompass.com, GileadCompass.com. And there you will see um, information about our newest partner, Wake Forest University School of Divinity, and the work that they're doing at the intersections of HIV and faith. And you also can learn from a person living and thriving with HIV and how his faith has been so important to him um, to educate others and to live uh, a full quality of life. And so you can find more information at GileadCompass.com and also learn about how you can apply for funds to address HIV in the southern U.S. Powerful personal testimony is invaluable as well in this effort, I'm sure. Ladies, thank you both for taking the time this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you. you. We were kind of mentioning this uh, the other day on the uh, program. The new Secretary of Agriculture, the new Secretary of Agriculture is the old Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack. But he said something interesting uh, the other day uh, that the challenges of hunger in America and certainly uh, during the course of the pandemic, we have uh, heard about uh, food insecurity becoming a problem for 
That's always been a problem for millions of Americans, but even more so during the pandemic. And on the topic of uh, food insecurity, uh, the Ag Secretary says the challenges of uh, hunger in America go beyond basic food insecurity into what he describes as nutrition insecurity. In other words, not only are too many Americans not getting enough to eat, they're not getting enough of the right stuff to eat in their diet. USDA contributor Rod Bain reports in today's Everyday Agriculture Report. When it comes to assuring everyone in our nation has enough nourishing food, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack says the focus is not just on addressing food insecurity. He believes there's a much larger problem that we have to confront, which is not only food insecurity, but also nutrition insecurity. At a recent National Press Foundation web event, the secretary offered examples of nutrition insecurity and some of its potential impacts. When you consider that 60% of American adults have one chronic disease, 40% of us have two or more chronic diseases, and diet is directly connected to many of those chronic diseases. When you look at the fact that we have a significantly high rate of obesity among our children, which poses a potential national security concern for admirals and generals who are trying to figure out where the all-volunteer military is going to come from when 75% of our children ages 17 to 24 are not fit for military service. You can see that this is a very large problem that we have to address. So how to improve both food and nutrition security in our nation? Secretary Vilsack offered four goals set by USDA and the Biden administration on addressing these concerns. I think first and foremost, we obviously have to modernize our nutrition security and food security system and our assistance program. The second goal is to expand the availability and consumption of healthier and more nutritious food for our children, for families that are financially stressed, and for socially disadvantaged individuals. Third, I think it's important for us to do a better job of educating consumers across the board about healthy choices that they can make. The fourth goal originated from lessons learned from the COVID-19 pandemic. The need for our food system to be able to transition more quickly from 50% of our food being consumed at food service operations to when food service operations are disrupted to quickly shift to our food assistance programs. The secretary explained some of the actions taken since mid-January to reach these goals and reduce food and nutrition insecurity. We've increased the SNAP benefit by 15%, and we intend to extend that increase upon the passage of the American Rescue Act. We've increased the pandemic EBT. That's the program that's providing assistance to families whose children are not currently in school because schools are shut down. Those children would normally get one or two meals at that location. Now the parents have to assume the burden. We're now providing a benefit to those families and increasing that benefit and making it available for children under the age of six. Additional efforts have included increasing access to online purchasing through Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program benefits, supporting schools with waivers and flexibilities for greater school meal accessibility, and enhancing support for food purchases under the Emergency Food Assistance Program. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update, the odd and unusual side of the news, brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veteran Services. Just when you think uh, that uh, people have outdone their weirdness in Florida, comes this story. I mean, it does seem like Florida has the weirdest arrests. More than any other state, I think Florida pops up in the broken news the most often. And here is another case. Uh, Eric 
Detige, Detige, D-E-T-I-E-G-E, Eric Detige has become known as the pickle pervert. He was uh, arrested by police after doing indecent things with a pickle. Now, in his defense, he was on private property. It's just that the property was not his <laughs> private property. There's a report from the smokinggun.com. There's the pantsless wonder pranced onto the golf course, onto a golf course, lay down on his back and proceeded to enjoy himself a little too much with a pickle. <laughs> I'm not sure how he did that. I'm not sure I want to know how he did this. Obviously, someone spotted him and called the cops. Police noted in their report that the perpetrator was relishing the moment. Oh, oh that's bad. Relishing the moment. Uh, Mr. Detige was charged with indecent exposure, was taken to the Pinellas County Jail. Uh, police also noted the uh, pickle lover had a peculiar tattoo, uh, which uh, said, quote, only God can judge me, unquote. <laughs> well, maybe so, but it won't stop us. We'll judge you anyway. That's, that's weird. Uh, let's see here. A man in uh, Tennessee, uh, Putnam County, Tennessee, stands accused of firing a gun at a semi-truck while driving down the highway on Saturday night. He allegedly had been involved in a dispute earlier with a truck's driver, Authorities attempted to stop Xavier Waters, but instead he led them on a brief chase. Police used spike strips, flattened two of Mr. Waters' tires, forcing him to stop. He then exited the vehicle and fled on foot to a nearby truck stop, where he reportedly was found hiding in the freezer at the McDonald's uh, restaurant at the truck stop. <laughs> hiding in the freezer. He was taken into custody and facing several charges, including evading arrest. I'll just hop in here. Nobody will ever, ever find me in here. Uh, let's see. What else is uh, going on in the uh, broken news this morning? Um, this is, I, if you've ever uh, been on your bicycle and been chased by an animal, you know how uh, alarming that can be. Imagine this in Ontario, Canada. Keith uh, Ailey? A-I-L-E-Y, Keith Ailey, uh, was biking along, minding his own business, when he encountered a black ram. A ram. Not of the truck variety, the actual animal, a ram. He said, I was biking along, I see something black uh, on the road, a uh, couple hundred feet in front of me. I thought, that's pretty big for a dog and really hairy, too small to be a bear. Uh, but as soon as I went past him, he did a full-on sprint, kind of charging and grunting. Eventually, he was able to make a dash for it when a trucker drove by and distracted the ram. Turns out, uh, the ram is a pet. Uh, his name is Ozzy. <laughs> and Ozzy, the ram's owner, uh, tells a CBC News reporter that the ram doesn't know that he's a ram. And uh, he just wanted to be friends. <laughs> Well, hey, just the same. I'm okay. I don't think I'm a... Man. Uh, let's see here. What else is uh, going on in the uh, broken news? Uh, this uh, Every married couple uh, has their difficulties. 
Uh, every married couple has their struggles, but this is uh, trying to, uh, this is taking it to a, a new extreme. An on again, off again couple in Ukraine have detri- decided to try and strengthen their relationship by handcuffing themselves together for three months. They have handcuffed themselves to each other. Alexandra Kudle and Victoria Petsitova have cuffed themselves together. They did this on Valentine's Day of all days. And they said, we used to break up once or twice a week on again, off again romance. When uh, during another fight, they were having an argument. And uh, she said we had to break up. But I said, I'm not going to do it this time. We're going to attach ourselves together. And that's what they did after uh, uh, after nearly a month of being cuffed so far. The couple says that while tensions still rise, they have found new productive ways to work through their disagreements. Well, maybe it'll work, but uh, would you try it? I don't know. That was kind of interesting. Uh, Let's see here. And finally, in the uh, broken news this morning, this is uh, another story that I'm not sure whether to be happy for this person or if I'm so insanely jealous that I just hate her. A woman in Maryland went to pick up an order of chicken wings at her favorite restaurant. But when she arrived, she ordered it to go because, you know, pandemic. When she arrived at the restaurant, her order was not quite ready. So while she was waiting, she decided to play the Kino game for the very first time in the state lottery. She used some of the family's birthdays and then random numbers to fill out a six-spot ticket for two drawings and added the super bonus multiplier option. First time ever playing, wouldn't you know it, She checked her game on the way out. She didn't really even think much about it after that. She got her food. Her order was ready. So she got that, paid for it. And on her way out, she decided, oh, I better check the game. And she was stunned to learn that she had won $80,000. $80,000. All because her chicken wings weren't quite ready yet. Again, I'm not sure whether to be happy for her or if I'm so insanely jealous that I just hate her now. I don't know. Anyway, there you go. She says she uh, plans to pay off some bills and take a vacation. Good for her. There you go. That is uh, today's broken news. The uh, odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veteran Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. You can help recognize outstanding teachers in Findlay and Hancock County. Nominate a current teacher who made a difference in your life for the Finley Rotary Club's Golden Apple Awards. Place your nomination online at finleyrotary.org. Nomination deadline is April 2nd. Please promote the work, dedication, and achievements of all teachers by nominating an excellent teacher for the Golden Apple Awards. This message provided by WFIN. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news, the statistics that shape our lives. 65% of Americans say that the pandemic has provided them with a wake-up call. And what are we doing about that? We are reaching out to others in our community. New survey of 2,000 Americans finds more than half are doing volunteer work for the very first time. 52% say they are volunteering in their communities for the very first time as a result of circumstances brought on by the pandemic. 
35% say they are uh, helping out others by delivering food to essential workers. Uh, 23% say they are volunteering to help the elderly or incapacitated maintain their homes. And 20% volunteering at a food pantry. Those are the most common ways that respondents had volunteered since the start of the pandemic. It's interesting, 7 out of 10 respondents say that while the effects of COVID-19 on their community made them more eager to volunteer, they have hesitated due to safety concerns. But the good side is, again, circling back to that number, 52% have nonetheless, despite those concerns, volunteered in their communities for the very first time. So the drive to help others is stronger than the concerns about our own safety. We've talked about all of the ways this this hand this pandemic has impacted us here's a way that certainly is it, it, it's impacted us in a good way and here's hoping that this part at least continues well after all of this is over Draw your attention to uh, this for uh, students and for parents of college-bound students. The application deadline for the Finley Kiwanis Scholarships is rapidly approaching. Joining us this morning is the scholarship co-chair for the Finley Kiwanis, Colin Earle. Uh, Colin, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. First of all, we appreciate it. A uh, very good morning to you. Thank Good morning to you, Chris. Uh, so uh, give us all of the uh, details here on the uh, Finley Kiwanis uh, scholarships, uh, how it works, the deadline. Uh, give us all of the nuts and bolts here, if you would. Sure. Well, um, your listeners can can go to finleykiwanis.org, and there's a, there's a holding pen there for scholarship awards. And each year, the Finley Kiwanis Scholarship awards close to $12,000 um, to local Hancock County students. And the, the criteria is, is pretty broad. It, it just, you need to have, be a resident in Hancock County, um, be a student within, within the county. Uh, but then we also have opportunities for freshmen and sophomore um, students who are already in college. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an opportunity there as well. Um, and we also have a scholarship for a two-year degree and a tech certification. So um, some of the money is, is kind of pooled for, you know, a traditional bachelor's degree, but we also are giving scholarships to a two-year uh, tech-credited certification as well. So that is uh, somewhat unique uh, and, and, as you said, makes it very broad so that a large number of individuals would potentially be eligible for this. Uh, what is involved in the application process? Yeah, it's it's pretty it's fairly simple, Chris. It's just a three-page um, application, and then um, there's an essay portion where students can can write an essay, and then we have a, a volunteer group, uh, members of the Finley Kiwanis Club, that kind of review the applications, and then we actually do an interview process. We we bring in the the selected individuals, uh, and we interview them and get to learn more about them, and then uh, right away we'll uh, we'll we'll accept, and um, after their first semester. They will get their they will get their um, get their scholarships. So, how many uh, scholarships are available in all in total? Yeah, so so currently we have five um, of the two thousand dollars scholarships uh, pursuing bachelor's degrees, and then we have um, two one thousand dollars scholarships um, for students 
looking to um, attend a two-year institution or, or tech, uh, tech training facility. So seven scholarships uh, in all, there are plenty of opportunities. We mentioned that the application deadline is rapidly approaching. It is actually going to be the end of the month, correct? Yeah, March 31st. So we're, uh, we're about two weeks out. So yeah, you can go to FinleyColanis.org uh, if you're a Hancock County resident. Um, and the application's right there. And there's all the information on just filling it out and where to send it to. And then what is the timeline beyond that for the uh, interviews and so on? How long will it take to go through the rest of this process? Yeah, so we'll, we'll typically review them um, after uh, in April, and then we'll typically bring the select individuals in, okay. um, usually the first part of May. All right. Um, and we'll wrap up. Yeah. So uh, March 31st is the application deadline for the uh, physical paper uh, application or the online application. People can actually complete that and submit it online, correct? That's correct. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, uh, like we said, seven scholarships uh, in all available. This is one of the programs that is supported by the annual Pancake Day fundraiser. So I want to mention this because uh, that is going to look a little bit different this year than it has been uh, in years past. First of all, it's going to be a little later than it normally happens. That's correct. Yeah. So June 5th, you can circle the calendars right now um, from 8 a.m. to noon over at the Finley High School, we will be having our Pancake Day and also 5K, uh, which is new. Yeah, so uh, if folks want to register for that, how do they uh, sign up? Is that on the website as well? Yeah, so currently we're, we're selling in, in-person tickets at this time. So um, you could stop by the, the Finley YMCA locations um, and, and just pop in there if you want to get a pre-sale ticket. There's a little bit of a reduced rate as well, which is nice. Okay. Um, and then also uh, close to 60 to 70 of our Kiwanis members here in town um, are you may be at, at the at your place of employment or church, and, and someone may tap you on the shoulder and say, "Hey, <laughs> um, it's Pancake Day," so be be on the tune for that as well. I know a lot of folks uh, look forward to that, and obviously for a good cause as well. And then the registration for the uh, 5K, so it's which is great uh, addition to the uh, event. So you uh, have your uh, pancakes, and then you can kind of work off those calories. Um, is is the registration for that uh, on the uh, website as well that's correct mm-hmm. okay. you can go to finleykiwanis.org and yeah you don't necessarily have to run walk the 5k it's it's an added feature we're doing this year but we're really really excited to do that it should be a great time of the year in june uh over at the high school and um a nice feature yeah if, if you want to get up in the morning and begin our 5k and then um and then there'll be uh, some nice, nice sausages and pancakes with you afterwards. Yeah, as well. that's that's probably the the better way of doing it rather than uh, uh, chowing down first and then doing the five uh, k. So <laughs> that's probably be the uh, preferred uh, order of events. But again, uh, you can get the uh, tickets for the pancake uh, uh, pancake day fundraiser and uh, sign up for the five k now and the uh, Finley Kiwanis scholarship uh, registration deadline or the scholarship application deadline uh, is again March thirty first, which is the 
uh, real the, the the real date here, the uh, deadline that we want to talk about because it's coming up uh, just a couple of weeks from now. Uh, again, these are just some of the things that uh, the Kiwanis Club does uh, throughout the uh, the year in the community. Um, if folks want to learn more, uh, again, you've got uh, all of the details on the things that you do, the ways that you are active within the community, and how someone becomes a member of the Kiwanis on the website. For sure, yeah. And we, we typically have our meetings every Wednesday at noon um, over at St. Mark's uh, Church there right downtown. And, and um, they, they've, been, they've been through the Zoom platform here recently, but we're looking forward to get back to to normal environment and yeah the santa's house that that you guys have a lot of the right around the christmas time mm-hmm. santa's house we're big uh we put that on our kiwanis closet so all of our um kiwanis closets and every elementary school in hancock county for for youth that need clothes um they can they can just go in and, and grab a pair of clothes if they need need some things are a little tight at home um, and then we also give to a lot of um, youth organizations as well and, and helping helping the county all the youth agencies and, and programs that are offered for students. So uh, involved in the community, particularly with the community's youth, the uh, Finley Kiwanis, again, scholarship de- uh, application deadline coming up at the end of the month. Colin Earl, the uh, scholarship co-chair uh, with us uh, on the line this morning. Uh, Colin, thanks very much for the update. We appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. We've got the uh, link up, by the way, to the Finley Kiwanis uh, website at our webpage. Go to goodmornings.net to learn more. And that is our podcast for today. I want to thank uh, all of our guests for joining us on the program, of course. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage. That is goodmornings.net. You can also connect with our social media channels. Shoot us an email if there's something you want to share directly or sign up for our daily email newsletter. We'll do all of the, uh, all of the above. Uh, again, goodmornings.net is the uh, website where you can connect with us online. So until tomorrow morning, that is good mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out, make it a good day, okay? We'll catch you back here tomorrow.